0: morning we're coming here to chapter 4 and we'll be looking verses 14 all the way through chapter 5 verse 10 remind you that the verse and chapter divisions uh, in our Bibles were not part of the original text but they were added in order to facilitate thought help us find our place and generally that's the case but sometimes the thought really continues from one chapter to another and that's what we'll find out this morning as we're beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, and then we'll continue the thought that the Lord has for us all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. Now at the end of the, a long, hot summer in Philadelphia in 1787, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had finally reached unity after an Long, long weeks of debate and discussion and had formed a, a document, a constitution for our country. And when the delegates were leaving that morning after the final approval of the document, then it would be sent to the various states. They were leaving into that hot and muggy Philadelphia Atmosphere, a lady called out to Benjamin Franklin and she said, Dr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, have you given us a monarchy or a republic? And Benjamin Franklin responded, a republic, a republic if you can keep it, a republic if you can keep it. When we pledge allegiance to the flag, we pledge allegiance to the republic for which it stands. What is a republic? What is a republic? Well, republic is a representative form of democracy. Democracy is when each person, each adult has a vote and casts that vote participating in the election or the decision. That is a pure democracy. But a republic is when people in the democracy use their vote to elect representatives who vote on behalf of them in the capital, whether it be of the state or of the nation. So a republic is when people elect representatives who vote on their behalf. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes we sometimes we don't know who they're voting for. You know, as Christians, we have the very best possible government. And I'm talking about the government Of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the very best government. Why? Because we do have a king. We have a monarch, King Jesus. But he is also one who represents us. We have a king. We have a monarch. But we also have in our king one who represents us in heaven. He is our monarch, but he also represents us before the throne of God in heaven as our representative. He is our priest. So the Lord Jesus is our king, and he is also our priest. And he is our perfect priest. And that's what we want to think about this morning. That's where the Lord has us as we're making this journey It's the truth that he gave to those early Christians and he gives to Christians through the ages that the Lord Jesus Christ is our perfect priest. Don't settle for less, right? What priest is there that could possibly compare to the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ? Now... One reason that the writer is sharing this, remember he is writing to predominantly Jewish people who have become believers in Jesus as Messiah. However, their life has become so difficult, it has become so full of persecution and uh, problems, that in many ways they're being tempted to go back. To go back to what they've known before. They're being tempted to go back to Judaism. The practice of that first century Judaism. To go back to the worship of the temple. Not gathering homes. But going back maybe to the worship of the temple. With all that it held. And all of its great glory and presentation. Go back where there was a temple. And the worship was led by a high priest. But that high priest was a very imperfect person. As a matter of fact, when this was written, the high priest was a very wicked person. And so the writer here is saying, why would you go back? Jesus is perfect. He is perfect. He is our perfect high priest. And this morning, that's what we want to think about, that Jesus is our heavenly representative. That's what Jesus is. He is our heavenly representative in the presence of God. And that's the point that the writer is making here as he talks about Jesus being better. He says he's better than the prophets, chapter 1. He's better than the angels, chapter 2 into chapter 3. He's better than Moses. Now he is better than any high priest. He is the perfect high priest. Now notice how he opens this up. First of all, he says that Jesus is our perfect high priest because he ascended to heaven. He ascended to be our high priest. And if you look at chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, the author is making a declaration. Did you notice this? His declaration is found in verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, notice there's the declaration. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And he takes that declaration and then he makes two challenges. Do you notice this? The first challenge is in verse 14. Since we have this great high priest passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. That's the first challenge. Let us hold fast our confession. And the second challenge is in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near. Let us with confidence draw near to this great high priest. Now the first challenge is this. Don't turn back. Hold on to your confession. Hold on to this faith in the Lord Jesus. Don't turn back. Jesus is better. He is a better priest. And why is that? Well, notice these reasons that he gives. He says he's a better high priest, first of all, because of his position. Because of his position. He says, Jesus is our high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens. What's that talking about? The ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is not just that the Son of God descended and came to the earth and lived the perfect life, yielded himself with that perfect life as a sacrifice for our sins and atonement for our sins, died and then was resurrected The gospel doesn't end there. The gospel says, now that resurrected Lord has ascended to heaven. And he is there interceding for us. One day he's coming back again. Right? One day he's coming back. So literally, we have a high priest who has ascended through the heavens. You see that plural? Heavens. When Jesus ascended, he ascended through the first heaven. That's the atmosphere. Then he ascended through the second heaven. That is space itself. And then he ascended to what the Bible calls the third heaven... ...into the very presence of God. Our high priest has ascended. He is ascended. He's a better high priest. He is ascended to God himself. And Jesus is a better high priest. Here's a second reason... Not just because of his position that he's ascended into heaven, but also, notice verse 15, because of his disposition. Because of his disposition. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet... Without sin. We have a high priest in Jesus who is able to sympathize. What does sympathize mean? It literally means to feel the same thing. It means Jesus knows what we are feeling. Because he has had the same experiences. Sometimes we think that we're like pawns on a chess table. And the God of heaven just moves us around, remotely removed from us without any feeling whatsoever. My friend, that's not the God we worship. We have a God whose name is Jesus who has been here, and not only been here, He's been like us. He knows what we're experiencing. He knows what we're experiencing. Notice it says in verse number 15... He was tempted in every respect as we are. Jesus was tempted. It's very important to understand this. It's not a sin to be tempted. Do you understand that? Jesus was tempted. What a thought there is in that. We we can't even quite understand that. But Jesus as the Son of God being purely human as well... He was tempted in every way any human being is tempted. Yet, without sin, he did not respond to the temptation. But he felt it. He knew it. And friend, what a comfort there is in that. Haven't you ever been comforted when you are talking to someone about a heartache or an illness or an experience... And they have been there too. They know the same thing. Haven't you felt that comfort? That somebody understands what you're experiencing. Well, we have that in our Lord Jesus. When you come to talk to Him about your struggles, when you come to talk to Him about your temptations, when you come to talk to Him about your fears, your frustration, your depression, He gets it. Because he's been tempted and tried in every respect that we have. What a comfort that is. But thank God for our high priest. Not just a comfort, but isn't it great? He won the victory. What a victory. He was tempted, but without sin. Without sin. Jesus lived that life approximately 33 years on this earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, feeling temptation, knowing temptation, but by God's grace overcoming that temptation so that when He stretched Himself out on the cross, He was giving Himself as a spotless Lamb of God, without sin, He offered himself, the Bible says, without sin to God. My friend, Jesus is better, right? He's better because of his position. He's in the heavens. He's better because of his disposition. Even though he's way up yonder, he knows what it's like down here for us. And then thirdly, he's not only better because of his disposition, he's better because of his provision, what he provides for us. What does he provide for us as our great high priest? Look at verse number 16. He says, this is what's been provided for us. Let us then with confidence, because we have this high priest in heaven, because he knows what we're going through, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's the second challenge. Don't turn back to the first one. The second one is draw near. Draw near. Do you know why you can draw near when you're being tempted to turn back? Because Jesus was too. He was tempted to turn back. But he overcame that with the help of his father. And because of that, now we can draw near to him. He's on a throne of grace. Did you notice that? Our high priest, Jesus, is on a throne. Now I've told you before in this series, this is something very radically different than what had gone before. Because all through the 1400 years before Jesus, one thing a priest never did in the worship of the people of Israel, leading the people of Israel, a priest never sat down. There was no chair in the tabernacle, there was no chair in the temple. A priest never sat down because his work was never finished. It continued day after day after day. Priest after priest after priest. They never sat down. But our high priest did. Look back at chapter 1. Would you turn back your page to chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. He, that is Jesus, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sin... Who does that? A priest. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high... My word, can you imagine being in heaven when Jesus came back and walked up to that throne and sat down next to His Father? Wow. He sat down, but He was still a priest. And where was He sitting? Look at verse 8. Who is this Jesus? Just a man? Who is this Jesus? Just a great prophet? No. Verse 8. But of the Son, He says... Speaking of Jesus, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When Jesus sat down, he sat down on the throne of God as a priest because he was the priest, the high priest for his people, And he was God's son who had returned back to the glory he had known before. He's God and priest. No one like him. But look at our chapter 4 here again. Did you notice this? I noticed this this week. i would never noticed it before. I want to show you something. And I hope it'll do you some good. It did me some good. Someone, I heard a preacher say one time, I don't know if I've done you any good, but I've preached myself happy. That's <laughs> Notice what it says in chapter 4, verse 13. We were here last week. Notice what it says about the judgment of God. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Imagine that. An omniscient judge who knows everything. That's who is on the throne of heaven. But now, drop down to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. Who wants to draw near to the one who knows everything about you? Who wants to draw near to the one who has flaming eyes of omniscience and is able to peer into your soul even know the motivations of your heart? Who wants to draw near to him? Nobody would unless Jesus had come. And perfectly satisfied the justice of the God who sits on the throne. Perfectly satisfied what his father needed by his death on the cross. And because God is satisfied, guess what? You can boldly come to the throne... and it's no longer a throne of judgment. Look what it calls it. Verse number 16. Does it say that it's a throne of judgment, Christian? No, what is it? A throne of what? Grace. Because of Jesus, the throne of God for a believer... has become the throne of grace. You have nothing to fear. Come on in. Come into the presence... Of your Abba, Father. When Jesus died on the cross on that Good Friday, what happened when he cried out, It is finished? That veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was God saying? Because of what Jesus has done, because of his sacrifice, what my son has done, you don't have to stay away from any longer. You come on in. You come into my presence. Wow. There's nobody like Jesus. What a change. What do we find when we come to our great high priest? We find grace. What's grace? Grace is loving provision. And we obtain mercy. What's mercy? It's loving pity. But it's not just pity that feels. It's pity that acts. See, if you just feel For someone. That's not mercy. When you feel for someone's needs. And you act on their behalf. That is mercy. Because that's pity with action. And when you come to God. Christian. You don't find a God like this. No you find a God like this. Who. Has mercy for us. He will help us. In the time. ...of our need. He's our high priest. He ascended to be our high priest. He's better than any other priest... ...because of his position... ...because of his disposition... ...because of his provision. But now notice the second thing... ...this writer of Hebrews shares... ...about Jesus. And we go into chapter 5 now... ...but the thought is continuing. He's saying Jesus is a better high priest... Not just because he ascended into heaven, but because he was appointed. He was appointed to be our high priest by God. And that's the message of verses 1 through 6. But Jesus was appointed. You see the key word? It's used two times. Verse 1 and verse 5. The word appointed. Look at verse 1. He is appointed to act on the behalf of men. Verse number 5. It says, no one takes this on himself verse 4 he was only called by god as aaron was so also christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest he was appointed now notice these two uses of the word appointed is comparing two priesthoods did you notice that the first word appointed is talking about the earthly priesthood, the priesthood of the people of Israel, which came down through Aaron. Who's Aaron? The brother of Moses. And God said that Aaron would be the first high priest, and all the high priests would be descendants from him. That's the earthly priesthood of the people of Israel down through Aaron. That's all they had known for 1,400 years. But now... He says, Jesus has been appointed. Jesus has been appointed. Verse 5, Jesus was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now notice this. Here's the two priesthoods. The first priesthood is this. God appointed a temporary earthly priesthood through Aaron and his sons. That's the first priesthood. Follow this now. This is very important, especially for those Jewish people, but important for people who believe of all time. The first priesthood that God established was a temporary priesthood, and it was earthly, and it was established through Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his descendants. That was the first priesthood God appointed. But now notice verse 5, through Jesus, God has appointed a different priesthood. God appointed an eternal, heavenly priesthood through Jesus, His only Son. The first priesthood was temporary. It was earthly. It was through Aaron. Aaron. This priesthood is eternal. It will never end. It is heavenly. And the one appointed is the Son of God himself. Verse 5 says, Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but he was appointed by him, that is God, who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Now notice that statement, you are my son, today I have begotten begotten you. That's the second time this has been mentioned in Hebrews. Look at chapter 5. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Chapter 1, verse 5, and also chapter 5, verse 5, is a quotation from Psalms. The Psalm of David, chapter 2. The second Psalm, verse 7, where it talks about the Messiah being, being enthroned by His heavenly Father. The Messiah being enthroned. You are my Son today. I have begotten you. Today I have established you. Today I have set you forth as my king. He's quoting from Psalm 2. But now notice verse 6 says, as he says in another place. And here he is quoting from Psalm 110. He says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's the point that the writer is making? He's speaking to these Jewish people. And he's saying, you see, the Messiah was a king on a throne. Psalm 2, verse 7. And then he says, now, he's also not just a king on a throne. He's a priest on a throne. And he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. And he says... I have made you a a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who's Melchizedek? We're going to come to him in detail in a few weeks. But let me just answer the question here. Who is Melchizedek and what's he got to do with Jesus being a high priest? This is flipped on me here. If you look up Melchizedek, he's a very, very Obscure figure in the Old Testament. He's only mentioned one time. Here's where he's mentioned. Abraham went to battle one time. He went to battle to rescue friends of his who had been carried off by marauding attackers and Abraham gathered some forces and went after them. And he brought all the people back from the towns who had been carried away in captivity. And so as he's just come back from battle and he's starting to head home with all these wonderful gifts that he's received for being the deliverer, the Bible says he's met by a man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is called the king of Salem. The king of Salem, meaning in Abraham's time, Jerusalem. What we call Jerusalem today was at that time, 18, 1900 years before Jesus, It was called Salem. What does it mean? Salem means what? Peace. So this man comes out to meet Abraham. His name's Melchizedek. And he is the king of Salem. But the passage says he's not just a king. It says he's also a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. He is a priest of the Most High God. He is a priest of the God of Abraham. Now, how he came to know the God of Abraham, we don't know. But here he comes. He's the king, the Prince of Peace, Salem. He's the Prince of Peace, And he's also a priest of the Most High God. And you know what Abraham did? Abraham took 10% of all he had, his tithe, and gave it to Melchizedek as an offering to God. Now, I don't know who he is, but when Abraham offers you a tithe, that's big time. He offered him a tithe. But think about who Melchizedek was. King of peace, prince of peace, and priest of the Most High God. And Abraham offered a tithe to him. Now, here's the point. What's the point? Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek. Why? He is the king of Salem. He is the prince of what? Peace. He's the prince of peace. And he is the priest of the most high God. So Jesus' priesthood is not like Aaron's. That was temporary and earthly. No, Jesus is a king priest. He's the prince of peace. And He is the priest of the Most High God forever and ever. And He is the one and only priest between God and man. The Bible says this, listen carefully. There's only one mediator between God and man. If you're going to come into God's presence, you can't come in your own authority or in your own righteousness because like me, you don't have authority, you don't have righteousness. If you're going to come into the presence of God, somebody's got to be there to be a mediator for you. Someone's got to clear the way and bring you and God together. And there's only one person who has ever walked this earth who could do that or has done that, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah, crucified as the sacrifice, risen again as the Lord of life, ascended to The Father, the priest for all who will come. The Bible says there is one God. There's only one God. And there is only one mediator between God and men. And that is the man Christ Jesus. There's only one door to God. And Jesus said, I am the door. And by me, if anyone will enter in, he shall be saved. Not just Jewish people, not just Asian people, not just Europeans or Africans, people from North or South America. Not any special people, but all are invited to come and be the special people of God who will come to Him through Jesus. Thank God. What a Savior He is. He's our perfect priest. He ascended to be our priest. He's appointed to be our priest. And then here's the third thing as we close. He is approved. (laughs) He's approved to be our priest. He's qualified. Verses 7 through 10 says that Jesus is qualified to be our priest. You see, before you could be a priest in Israel, you had to be carefully inspected. First of all, you had to be carefully inspected for your physical ancestry. You had to be able to prove that you are a descendant of Aaron in order to be a priest. And also, not just your ancestry had to be inspected, but your physical appearance had to be inspected. There could not be any blemish on you. Nothing that would look like a sore Nothing that would somehow appear to be malformed. Why? Because the priest represented the one who was to come. The perfect priest who would be without any disqualifications whatsoever. The perfect priest. Likewise, Jesus, in order to be our high priest, he had to be completely qualified. And what were the qualifications that Jesus had to face? The Bible says, verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Being made perfect here doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect. It means that Jesus, having become in every way qualified, complete, and whole, could be our priest. What did Jesus have to experience in order for him to be qualified to be our our priest? First of all, he had to be completely qualified through complete submission. Complete submission. Verse 7. He's talking about Jesus. The high priest. In the days of his flesh. That's when he was here on the earth. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and He was heard because of His reverence. Now, my friend, where does that take you in the life of Jesus? It takes you to the Garden of Gethsemane when under those olive trees On the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. There Jesus cried out. He cried out with prayers, supplications, and tears to the one who was able to save him. But what did Jesus always say? Even as he was in such agony in Gethsemane, knowing what was ahead of him on the cross, what did he say? Not my will but thy will be done. Complete submission. In order to be our representative, he had to completely submit to the will of God. And he was heard. God sent angels to minister to him. And he survived that ordeal in Gethsemane so that he could finish his work on the cross. Complete submission. And then he had to experience obedient suffering. Obedient suffering. Verse 8. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, does this mean that Jesus had been disobedient? No, he's not been disobedient. What this means is that Jesus had to experience what it means to be totally and completely obedient. He had to go all the way. He had to truly experience what it meant to put himself totally under the will of the Father. And be obedient unto death. And as the Apostle Paul says, he was obedient even to the death of the cross. Today is Palm Sunday. And Jesus rode on this Sunday. He rode on that donkey into Jerusalem. And the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of David. Here comes our King. But Jesus knew his destination was not the throne. Not yet. His destination was not a crown, but what? cross and he set his face he would not turn back praise God for a savior like that and because he was willing to do that he has provided eternal salvation and he being made perfect he being completely submissive and obedient unto the death of the cross he has become the source Of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. What does it mean to all who obey Him? Does Does that mean you have to earn your salvation? You have to work for your salvation? No, here's what it means. What is the obedience? It's the obedience of faith. What is the obedience? Repent and believe the gospel. That's the obedience of faith that the Bible talks about. God has now called out and said to all men everywhere to repent and to turn to Jesus. This is what we must obey. It's the gospel message that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved and we must bow the knee to the only Savior and call upon Him because in Him there's perfect salvation. Many years ago, there was a wealthy man. His wife delivered him a beautiful baby boy, but she died shortly after from complications from the birth of the child. The father loved the little boy. He was so delighted in the little boy But tragically, when he was still a small child, the little boy died. And the father, having laid to rest his little son next to his beloved wife, he was so overcome with grief. He never really recovered. And his health began to decline. And he only lived a few more years. He had no other relatives, really, other than this son. And so an auction was held of all his estate. People came everywhere to get some bargains from this rich man's estate. And the auctioneer got up and he said, We're going to start with this portrait. And he held up a portrait of the little boy. We'll start the bidding at $100. Who'll give me $100? Not a sound. Come on now, come on now. Who, who would like this? Somebody give me $75. Who'll give me $75? No one. Who'll give me $50? Finally, all the way down to $10, and an old man stepped forward, the gardener, who had loved the little boy and used to help, let him help him in the garden. And he said, I'll give you $10. And he gave the auctioneer $10, and the auctioneer gave him the painting. And then the auctioneer cried out, Auction is over. Why? Why? Why everybody cried out? It can't be over. What about all the other stuff? And then he read from the will. Here's what it said The man had written these words in his will Whoever takes my son gets it all. Whoever takes my son. Gets it all. Praise God, my friends. Listen. If you take the Son, the Lord Jesus, you get it all. Get it all.